We're going to be basically in the book of Revelation today. And um, I'm going to walk you through um, primarily what we see in the beginning of the book of Revelation. And then explain how I believe that fits into, or how the rapture actually fits into that. Now if you remember, last week what we did was we looked at four different views of the rapture. And I'm just going to jump right to the pre-trib position, because that's the one that, that we're most familiar with. Um, it's one of the more popular ones within um, evangelical Christianity. Probably the most popular one would be the best way to say it. Um, the, the first two that we had looked at, the um, post-trib and the mid-trib, I don't think there's, there's much weight for that. I'm not going to rehash that. Um, but the pre-trib, I would say there's evidence for that within the scripture. And that's primarily the position that is held primarily within evangelical Christianity. Um, one of the things that um, it proposes to us is that Jesus is going to come back at the beginning of the rapture, or the beginning of what is referred to as the tribulation. That's the way that pre-tribulationists refer to Daniel's 70th week. They call it the tribulation. They see that whole entire seven years as the wrath of God. And because of that, because Jesus promised that we would be we would not have to see his wrath, then it would make sense that Jesus would return before that seven-year period of Daniel's 70th week. That's what the pre-trib rapture position holds. One of the key doctrines of that is something called imminence. If you remember, imminence means that there's nothing else that has to occur before Jesus can rapture the church. He could come back before I put the period on this sentence. That's the understanding. Because nothing has to be fulfilled before nothing's been prophesied before he returns. One of the problems I mentioned last week that I had with that is there's at least four things in the scriptures that have been prophesied that have to occur before that can happen. And the reason we know that is because the day of the Lord, which is when God pours out his wrath, is described as having four things that need to take place before that happens. One of them is the coming of Elijah. Another one is the revealing of the Antichrist. Another one is the apostasy of the church. And then lastly, signs in the heavens, the sky, the sun going dark. There's these celestial signs that take place before the day of the Lord begins. Now the reason I say that those things have to happen before the rapture is because, you look at Luke chapter 17, Jesus makes it really clear that the day of the Lord and the rapture occur simultaneously. That is the rapture of the church that triggers the day of the Lord. Meaning that if those things have to happen before the day of the Lord, they must have to happen before the rapture. And if you go back to that passage, he refers to on that day. And he talks about things like, well, when Noah went into the ark, he goes into the ark. That's equivalent of the rapture, the rescuing of of him. And what happens that very day? It starts to rain. When, When Lot came out of Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened? Well, as he escapes... As he flees, immediately he can see the hail and fire and brimstone pouring down and destroying the city. That's what Jesus describes. And the phrase on that day is repeated. And so the understanding would be that the rapture and the day of the Lord begin simultaneously. And that makes sense if he were to be rescued from God's wrath, that he would rescue us when his wrath begins. That's the understanding that I have from the scriptures as relates to this. And so that becomes a, a primary challenge for the rapture because or of the pre-trib position, because the pre-trib position here, what they say is that Jesus can come back at any moment. But there are a number of things that have to be in place for this to occur here, this seven years. For one would be a new temple in Jerusalem, because the Antichrist signs an agreement with Israel here, and three and a half years in, he goes into the temple and desecrates it and sets himself up as God. And so, Within pre-trib circles, they would say, well, Jesus could come back today, but that doesn't mean that the tribulation starts right away. There could be a gap between here. But again, if they believe that this whole entire seven years is the wrath of God, these two events, there cannot be a gap between the rapture and the beginning of that. So that, to me, poses a real challenge to this view. Now, I'm not saying this view is wrong, because remember... Plenty of people in the past have thought they've had it all wrapped together. Okay? I know some godly good men that believe this. I believe this for most of my Christian life. I don't hold to this position necessarily anymore, but I'm still learning and still growing. But that's some of the concerns with this particular position. Um, Another problem I have with this view is that partly what drives it, at least within the people that sit in the pews, 
meaning it's not necessarily driven by a sound understanding of the scriptures. I'm not saying people that sit in the pews don't have a sound understanding. I'm saying what drives those who are sitting in evangelical churches to this position in some respects, even if they don't understand what's in the scriptures, is this idea that I don't want to suffer. I don't want to face this. And there's this belief that we shouldn't have to suffer the things that we see in the book of Revelation. But the church has suffered those things. All of the things we find in the book of Revelation, we find in the world in history with Christians. The persecution. Maybe not to the degree where it's worldwide, but Christians, Christians have suffered horribly for 2,000 years. And so that's not a reason to want to hold this position. Now, again, it doesn't mean that people who hold this position are only holding it for that reason. I'm simply saying that there are many who couldn't tell you why they believe this from a theological position, but they hold to it because they don't want to be here. That's not a reason to hold a position. Okay? Uh, and again, I'm not doing that to disparage anybody. Um, that's just the way that it is. And so that partly drives this position. Now, the view that I proposed last week was the pre-wrath view, which is something that's been around um, in a formal sense for about the 1970s, 80s. It doesn't, again, doesn't make it right or wrong. Just because it's newer in terms of its formulation doesn't mean it's wrong either. Um, I think this view best represents what we see in the church fathers. They don't talk a lot about the rapture, but they do talk a lot about Christians having to suffer through the persecution of the Antichrist. So their views don't really present a pre-trib view, their views more closely represent what we're going to talk about today. doesn't make it right or wrong. Again, it's just the, the reality of history and what we see historically. And so what this view proposes is that this Daniel 70th week right here, okay, that it's basically made up the first part is something that I refer to as Satan's reign, where the Antichrist basically is the dominant figure on the earth. Right in the middle is when we have the abomination of desolation where he goes into the temple with Israel. He declares himself as God. He puts an end to all their sacrifices. Remember, he makes a peace treaty here. So it's kind of a good three and a half years. Okay, Israel's still able to do what it wants. But then he stops all that right here. And then this period here, immediately following that, becomes a great period of persecution where he persecutes the church, he persecutes Israel, the scriptures don't tell us exactly how long that's going to be. But then after that is when the rapture occurs and the day of the Lord begins immediately. The first 30 days or so happen within the final days of Daniel's 70th week. But then it extends a little bit beyond that as well. And Daniel talks about this in Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 9 where he talks about the extra 30 days, the extra 45 days. Those kind of things are happening here. Okay, And then we have... The last thing there would be the return of Jesus Christ. So what this teaches is not that it happens right in the middle, but that the rapture happens after the abomination of desolation and after the persecution. And partly what drives that as well is when Jesus himself says that had those days not been shortened, even the elect wouldn't survive. And so the idea here with this view is that this period of great tribulation that even Jesus talks about ends when God finally puts an end to it. He stops it because the persecution is so serious, so severe, that nobody, none of the elect would even be alive after that. And so God puts an end to that and then pours out his wrath because the church is now gone. So what this position holds in common with the pre-trib view is that we will be rescued before God's wrath is poured out. Both of them hold to that. That we will not be here when God is pouring out his wrath. So now the question is, is that full seven-year period God's wrath? And that's kind of what we have to answer. If we can demonstrate that in Daniel's 70th week, that those early events, the opening of the seals, if we can show that that's God's wrath, then certainly the pre-trib position would have to be true. We'd have to be gone before that. But if we can demonstrate that those first six seals, the stuff that happens, are not God's wrath, and that God's wrath does not happen until after the midweek at some point, after the um, abomination of desolation, it doesn't mean that the rapture doesn't happen until after that. It just means that it can happen any time up to that point, somewhere within that seven-year period. Does that make sense, or did I make the waters too muddy for you? 
we'll go ahead and walk through that. You're gonna, your eyes are going to bug out here in a second because you're going to see a diagram that I put together. That um, this is my own work. Um, what I mean by that is the, the graphic design is this. The way I lay this out is my own stuff. It's not something you can download somewhere else. Um, I did this because I'm a visual person. I need to see things in order to keep them in mind. Now, you have a copy of this in your notes, but I also, if you want it, I've also printed off full-color copies um, to make it easier to kind of see. And you can pick these up either now or you can pick them up when, when you're done. It's up to you. Um, but let me go ahead and, and, and kind of break this all down. We're going to walk through this. So turn to the book of Revelation, if you will. The proposal that I'm making is this. That the seven seals in Revelation, the very beginning of chapters 5 through 8, as you see there, that those seven seals that Jesus basically removes from the scroll are not the wrath of God that the wrath of God is what's contained in the seal. I mean, in the um, book. So, turn to Revelation chapter 5, and I'll, I'll kind of drive that home in a second here, but Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, or verse 1, we see this. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. So we have this book, or possibly a scroll, that's sealed up, and it's got these seven seals on it. Now what's really interesting about this is we actually archaeologically have found what is described here. Not this particular scroll, but back in 1962, um, an archaeologist found a scroll that had seven seals. And it was from the 4th century B.C. Exactly what is described here. A seal, I mean a, a scroll or a book that was rolled up Concealed, you couldn't see what was in it, and it had seven wax seals on it. And those wax seals were still good. They have since taken those seals off and opened it up. You could actually travel, I don't know if it's in, if it's in London, where it's at at this point, but you could travel and see it. Okay? In addition to that, the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a total of 70 metal-covered books. Actual books, not scrolls, but metal books that had these ring seals on it. And one of them was a metal book with seven rings that sealed the book. In order to open that book up, you had to pull off those metal rings. So, in all likelihood, what is being described here is either a book much like that with the rings sealing it, or a rolled up scroll that had these seven wax seals on it. And what those were used for is to conceal the contents of what was in that book or in that scroll. Okay? There's some evidence that this is the way that judgments were delivered. They would take a scroll and they would seal it up with wax. And so that's what we're looking at here. So, we'll finish reading this. He says he sees this, and then verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. In other words, I couldn't see what was inside it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And no one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping, behold... I'm sorry, and one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping, behold, the lion that is on the throne from the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has, be, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders of the Lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, one each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you are slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So we get this amazing picture of this book or this scroll that's sealed up. You can't see the contents of it. And nobody's worthy to open it. Except one, the Lamb of God. He's able to open it. Now, what the, Im the interesting imagery here is, is what we see as we go through the book, that what this scroll is to reveal is God's judgment upon the earth. And the only one able to open that is the judge himself. 
because he's the only one that's worthy. And so that's the picture that we see. And so it's, it's my view and the view of those who hold the pre-wrath position that the seals themselves are not the wrath, but rather the wrath and the judgment of God is what's contained in the seal. But before that is revealed, it has to be opened. Which means each one of those seals have to be taken off that scroll. And it isn't until that scroll is opened that we now see the judgment of God and his wrath upon the earth. So that brings us to the question, what then is the deal with the seals? Well, let's go ahead and look at those. We see the first seal opened up in verse 6. Or I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 1. We'll just briefly go over these. The first seal is found in the first two verses of chapter 6. Then I saw the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of a thunder, Come, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he went out and conquered and to conquer. You might see in your Bibles, you might have a heading to that, and it probably says something like, The False Christ, or maybe The Antichrist. And that's the general consensus is that that first seal, when it's removed, is the appearance of the false Christ or the Antichrist on the earth. I would contend that that's when he becomes known in some respects. Go to the second seal. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth... And the men would slay one another with a great sword was given to him. The second seal then is generally considered, and this is by pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, it's considered to be war. So peace is removed from the earth because of either a, a world war, but more likely multiple wars upon the earth. The third seal then, verse 5, When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So this is generally understood to be famine upon the earth. Then we have an open up the fourth seal. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then the Lamb broke the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come, I looked and beheld an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him to take a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Most would interpret this as being the death that comes from war, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. We get to the fifth seal. Look at verses 9 through 11. And when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So that's now the fifth seal, which describes martyrdom of believers. Now notice, this is in Daniel's 70th week. Now, pre-trib proponents would say, yeah, these are the people that came to Christ after the rapture. In other words, the rapture happened at the beginning. There's no more Christians there. The church is not there. These are people that came to Christ after. And that certainly does make sense. If the church is raptured, this would refer only to those coming to know Christ afterwards. Pre-trib, I'm sorry, pre-wrath proponents would argue this is the church. These are martyrs from the church who are being persecuted by the Antichrist. If you look at the way that I've kind of broken this out, I've put these seals down into how they're, how they're unfolded. And then above that, if you look, I've superimposed Jesus' Olivet Discourse to that. You could take the, the Olivet Discourse from Jesus from Matthew 24 and take these first few chapters of the book of Revelation and there are something like 30 different things that all correlate. Okay? And so what you basically see is that the false Christ, the wars, and the famine coincide with what Jesus refers to as birth pangs when he says, but if time's not yet, 
It's not yet. He refers to them as birth pangs. If you then look at seal 4 and 5, the death and then martyrs, that coincides with what Jesus describes as the great tribulation, which comes after the midpoint, and it's when Satan, or I'm sorry, when um, the Antichrist starts to severely persecute the church and Israel. Or we can just, if you're pre-trib, say saints. Okay? That's the way that it appears to break down. And so these six seals start at some point with the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, and they extend past the midpoint, the abomination of desolation. So we'll see here, if you look at your diagram, this is when the beast signs his, the Antichrist signs his covenant with Israel, a peace covenant of sorts. And then when he breaks it right here in the middle, and it comes about when we see death increase, martyrdom, etc. doesn't mean there's no persecution in the beginning part of this. It just means that, as Jesus describes it, it's great tribulation. So the persecution of the Antichrist gets ratcheted way up. And it makes sense because he goes into the temple and now declares himself as God. It's now open season on any believers of God. And so it makes sense that his persecution would ratchet up significantly at that, at that point. Now, there's all kinds of other stuff. And, you know, we're not going to get into this because I'm going to spend some more time on seal six. But there's all these other things down here in blue that begin about that time that the abomination of desolation happens. And this is elsewhere in the book. You've got the Jews who are fleeing to the wilderness. The book says that the Jews flee to the wilderness and they're nourished by God for that second half of the tribulation. So when that abomination of desolation happens, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24? When you see the abomination of desolation, head for the hills, get out of Jerusalem. That's described in the book of Revelation as well, Revelation chapter 12. It says the Jews will flee and God will protect them in the wilderness from the persecution of the Antichrist. You also have two angels that come down from heaven that begin to preach the gospel on the earth. Not down there, they're preaching from heaven, it sounds like. But two angels begin to preach the gospel all over the world. You've also got the two witnesses that appear at that point. And there are two physical witnesses that are here on earth. I teased Dustin the other day about not being here. He's going to miss the rapture today. And he said he was going to be content because he's going to be one of the two witnesses if that's the case. Didn't know who the other one was. But then also we're told that the Gentiles are allowed to trample Jerusalem for that second half. We're also told that the beast has given authority over all the earth. Full reign at this point to do what he wants, which again describes or explains explains all of the uh, increase in the persecution. And then lastly, Revelation 12, 13, 14, all mention persecution of the saints by the beast. Specifically mentions persecution of the saints. Now, I mentioned last week that one of the one of the, the, the digs against pre wrath is that the church, the word church is never used in the book of Revelation past or when the 70th week begins. And they'll say, because the church is never mentioned, can't be there during this time. Okay, the term church isn't the only term used to believers. We're called holy ones, we're called saints. So the word saints is used repeatedly. Doesn't mean it's the church. Could just mean Jews that got saved. But it doesn't exclude the church. We don't have to see the word church listed here to prove the church is there. There's other language that could describe saints that could be the church. So those are all the things that happen when that begins. And so here we are. We have death of the martyrs in chapter five, or in, in, with the seal 5. I want you to note a few things. Notice so far, we haven't seen really anything that looks like the rapture of the church. For being as significant of an event that the rapture is, the question I ask is, why hasn't it been mentioned yet? I don't know the answer to that specifically, unless it's going to happen later. Another thing to note, there's a natural progression here. The Antichrist begins to rule. It leads to war, so he can secure that rule, which leads to famine, because war, world war especially does, which then leads to death, disease, and chaos, and even persecution of believers. It's a natural progression that you might expect, if what we're seeing here is not God's wrath being poured out, but rather Jesus opening up these seals and allowing to play out 
things that will lead up to when God pours out his wrath. Think of Custer's last stand. Satan knows his time is near. Jesus, being sovereign, would have to allow those things to happen. Job was persecuted because the Lord allowed Satan to do that. And that would be one way to interpret this, that Jesus, as he's opening these seals, is doing just that. He's allowing those final events to take place. You know, there's something referred to as common grace, which is that the only reason we have not completely descended into what we saw pre-flood is because God's prevented it from happening. Mankind left through his own sinful desires, we would have crushed this planet a long time ago. But God has in his sovereignty prevented that from happening so that he would not have to wipe out the world with another flood. He controls all these things. But it doesn't mean he's causing them. Does that make sense? And that would be the argument of this position that Jesus opening these seals doesn't mean that he's now forcing all these things to happen, but rather, no, he's opening that, revealing each piece as we're marching up closer and closer to when God finally says, no, now I'm done. Now is the time for my wrath. That's the perspective that we're looking at here. So these events here, I believe, are the consequences of Antichrist's reign and of God finally handing us over, meaning the world over, not us as Christians. Um, The other thing we'd have to ask with this, um, if this is God's wrath, okay, what do we make of chapter, or or of um, this fifth seal? These individuals here in the fifth seal are martyrs during the tribulation. If God promised the church rescue from wrath, how are these people here not facing God's wrath? In other words, if, if these people are dying and being martyred at this point, remember, we're talking here in, in this fifth seal, these are the martyrs that died during this period of time. If this is all God's wrath, then he basically said, well, I'll rescue the church from my wrath, but not the rest of those believers. They have to face my wrath. Christians, believers in Christ, don't face God's wrath. We are, we are free of that. But yet somehow we're supposed to say that, well, but these martyrs, these people here, they die because of God's wrath. That's, I don't, that doesn't fit to me. So I, I don't, and you can ask me about that a little later if I've muddied that water for you, but this is a huge problem for pre, pre-trib that what do you do with the martyrs here in the fifth seal? Because if all this has been God's wrath, they're suffering God's wrath. Maybe not for eternity, but certainly physically here. That's a problem for pre-trib, I think. But it's not a problem for pre-wrath, because in pre-wrath, rapture hasn't happened yet. And we don't see this as God's wrath. We see it as the wrath of the Antichrist. Because God's wrath has not begun yet. Then that leads us to the sixth seal. Look at verses 12 through 14. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from who? The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Do you remember what Jesus said has to precede the coming of the day of the Lord? When his wrath is poured out, Jesus said the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars would go dark. That they would see his sign appear in the heavens. Both Isaiah and Joel prophesied that the day of the Lord begins with celestial signs. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah chapter 13, look specifically at chapter verses 6 through 10. Joel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Verse 30 through 32. In fact, we'll turn there in a second. And then Joel chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Turn to Joel chapter 2 with me. We'll just briefly touch that. 
Joel chapter 2, jump down to verse 30. He's talking about the day of the Lord, the time when God would pour out his wrath. I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on the Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. We see the same thing in Isaiah, where these celestial signs that appear in the heaven, like never before, will signal when God's wrath is about to begin. If you go back to Revelation chapter 6 there, you see that with the opening of that sixth seal, that that's what happens. You see these celestial signs, which means that the day of the Lord is about to begin with the sixth seal. That's the beginning of God's wrath. Now you notice, too, that this is the first time God's wrath is mentioned, and it's mentioned by the kings of the earth. And what are they saying? They recognize, they see him appear. Jesus said, my sign will appear. And when did he say his sign would appear? For the rapture. It's not a secret, hidden rapture. In fact, this book that was handed to us this morning, notice it says, where are all the missing people? One of the things that you, remember, you may remember from the books, um, the Left Behind books, is that it's a secret rapture. That the world doesn't see it. It's just Christians disappear. They're, they're gone and their clothes are left behind and you have pilots that aren't flying planes anymore and cars that are crashing and it's all, it's all secret. But Jesus never describes the rapture as being secret. It'll be seen. And what do we see here? If the day of the Lord begins with the rapture, as Luke seems to suggest, as Jesus suggested, what will happen here is that the kings of the earth see these celestial signs. They see Jesus. They see him, it says here, because they clearly have their eyes on him. But what do they start crying out about? We are about to face God's wrath. And they are crying out to the mountains, they're crying out to the rocks, fall on us, save us. They would much rather die than face the wrath of God that's coming. They recognize that God's wrath is now about to begin. One of the things that Jesus describes about this period of time is he says that prior to this, they will be drinking and marrying and getting married. They're partying on. Does that sound like God is pouring out his wrath? If, God, if, if during these first four seals, or five seals, if they are simply going about business, partying, drinking, carrying on life, does that sound like God's wrath is being poured out? They certainly don't recognize it as God's wrath. Look in the Old Testament. Every time that God pours out his anger and his wrath, people know that's what he's doing. There's no question. And yet, Jesus describes the beginning of this as just carrying on like before the flood. No big deal. But all of a sudden that changes with the opening of this sixth seal where the people of earth recognize God's wrath is about to begin and they begin to cry out for the rocks and the mountains to crush them rather than face that. There is a distinct difference between the first five seals and now this sixth seal. Drastically changes. The seventh seal then, we're going to jump down into chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to come back to the rest here in a second. But the seventh seal then is opened up in chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And I saw the seven angels stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a gold censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which, uh, with the prayers of the saints went up before God and to his angels. And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and he threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning on the earth. So what we basically have with the opening now of the seventh seal is the first thing we see is now there's silence for 30 minutes. Remember what we mentioned last week, that oftentimes God's judgment begins with silence. In fact, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. 
Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And he's talking there about the day of the Lord. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 13. Same thing. Talking about the day of the Lord. Be silent. All flesh before the Lord. For he is aroused from his holy habitation. God's wrath begins with silence. And we see here with the opening of this seventh seal. The first thing is there silence. And when that silence is done, we have an angel takes incense, throws it down to the earth, and what happens next? We get the seven trumpets followed by the seven bowls of God's wrath. So, as I read through this, and this is again the pre-wrath viewpoint and interpretation of this, God's wrath doesn't begin until the opening of that seventh seal. The sixth seal signals it because we have the signs in heaven. We have Jesus appear in the sky to rapture the church. We ultimately then have the men of earth crying out. They recognize it's God's wrath. They cry out for the mountains to fall on them, to crush them because they don't want to face God's wrath because they know what's coming. So what the pre-wrath view teaches is that the rapture of the church happens between this sixth and seventh seal. So it happened likely when the sign appears here with the opening of the sixth seal when the kings on earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves. They refer to the presence of him. what the pre-wrath view would teach is that that's probably them seeing Christ rapture the church and now recognize that God's wrath is about to pour out. Now, when we have that sixth seal open, there's a number of other things that actually take place and I think they would support our teaching this morning. When that first, or that sixth seal is opened, if you look at chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, you see four angels that are getting ready to harm the earth. Verse 1. After I saw four, or after this, meaning what? Opening of the sixth seal. Four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice of the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their foreheads. Now we know that that's coming next because the second thing that we see is the sealing of 144,000 Jews. So that's what this angel is saying. So we have these four angels. They're getting ready to harm the earth, pour out God's wrath on it. But they're told, don't do that yet until we get the 144,000 sealed. And so that's the second thing that happens. You find that in verses 4 through 8. You've got the sealing of 144,000 Jews to be protected from God's wrath. Now, there's a, within pre-trib circles, it's believed that those 144,000 are basically evangelists. But they're never described as evangelists anywhere in the scriptures. I believe this is just God sealing 144,000 Jews, 12,000, because God promised all Israel would be saved. He's going to save Israel, and he does. He saves 12,000 at least from every tribe of Israel. We see a little bit later in the book of Revelation, Jesus standing on the mountain with these 144,000. So these are not witnesses, necessarily. These are not um, evangelists. These are God protecting his people and rescuing Israel just like he said he would. There's also evidence that the gospel is being preached by, again, two angels from heaven and the two witnesses that are on earth. So the gospel is being preached. These are probably not evangelists. But within the pre-trib position, they would argue that they are. Partly because they're the ones that then go out and try to save people that are stuck here during this time. Um, But again, they're never described that way. They're just simply 12,000 Jews from each tribe that God puts a seal on and protects, which would suggest that they obviously get saved and are saved. And you see that I've kind of put that over here. You know, this purple area here is that you've got those that are martyred during this period, go on into paradise. 
Um, unsaved are judged. Jews and Gentiles saved between the rapture and the bold judgments who survive, which would include those 144,000 Jews, meaning that they're saved. God saves them. But again, I don't believe that they're evangelists. That's not primarily their purpose. It's God fulfilling his promise to rescue Israel. Now, um, the third thing that happens with this opening of this sixth seal is found in verses 9 through 17. I want you to read this and tell me what you think, at least rhetorically. After these things I looked. Remember, this is after the sixth seal. After these things I looked. And behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, who will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now when you read through that, who do you think that is? I mean, the description that's given there, um, they're dressed in white robes, they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, they're called His servants, Jesus is even called their shepherd. If we went back to the opening of that fifth seal where it said, here's the martyrs being persecuted by Antichrist, but they had to wait until the rest of their fellow servants would be martyred during this period of time. What are they waiting for? Probably the rapture, I would would suggest. When you put this all together, I believe this is a description of the church. And it includes those who have been raptured out of what's referred to here as the Great Tribulation. Just the language that's being used there, again, down to not just the idea of servants, but the white robes and him being their shepherd. That's all church language, if you will. Now, it doesn't exclude Israel because, obviously, we've got plenty of Jews that have gotten saved and are part of the church. But this great multitude that's literally from every tribe and every tongue. It's a number that cannot be counted. Certainly looks like the church. And it says they've come out of the tribulation, the great tribulation. So I think everything about this description suggests that these are Christians. What what are Christians doing in the great tribulation? Pre-trib would say, well, it's just those who got saved. I guess it's possible, but it would mean an awful lot of people getting saved during that tribulation period. But you know what? As you go through the book of Revelation, there's not a single instance that describes the people of the earth responding favorably. In fact, they constantly shake their fists at God. When, we see, when they see the wrath here in the sixth seal, they don't cry out for salvation. What do they cry out for? Kill us so we don't have to face God's wrath. So, it's more likely that very few, there will be some, I think Jesus makes that clear, but I don't believe we're going to see a massive revival during this time. Because the book of Revelation doesn't describe a massive revival, it describes them shaking their fist. And so the idea that this great multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue that's uncountable, that that's just a small, very small segment of people that got saved during the tribulation, doesn't make much sense. 
It's a better representation of all believers, many of whom get saved out of the Great Tribulation. I believe that this is matching what Jesus says. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Starting in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, he's talking about after the abomination of desolation, after the, tribula- or after the um, persecution of saints by the Antichrist, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven or from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Well, we see that when the sixth seal is opened. And they will see the Son of Man coming. They talk about the presence of him who's coming. They will see the sign of the man of or the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels and a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heaven to the other. That's all those who belong to Christ will be gathered up at that point. If this is a ref- reference to the rapture, I believe that it is. That's happening between the 6th and the 7th seal. Now some pre-trib would argue, no, this is referring to the second coming. But that's not the way that it's laid out. If you follow the pattern, we look to the rapture of Christ. We don't look for the other things. We're supposed to be looking and waiting for Jesus to come. So, when I think about, you know, a lot of this here, um, if you look at what Jesus does here in describing what I believe is the rapture in verse 31, the very next thing that he does is he starts the, this list of parables, if you will. Okay? And these parables, I think, tell us something else about this. And I think it gives us the reason why verse 31 should be interpreted as the rapture of the church happening between the sixth and seventh seal. If you look at this, uh, the first parable there, the parable of the fig tree, basically Jesus is telling us, look for the signs. Look for these things that will indicate when he's coming back. Okay? So the fig, the fig, fig tree there, he says, nobody's going to know the day or the hour when what's going to happen. Verse 31, when he comes back and he gathers his elect. He says, nobody knows the day or the hour of that. Okay? That better describes the rapture of the church because we don't know when that's going to happen. But we do know when the second coming is because, remember, Daniel laid all this out for us. We know that from the moment Israel signs a peace agreement with the Antichrist, and we know the middle comes right here, which is 1260 days from that agreement is when the abomination of desolation starts. That's when the persecution of the Antichrist starts. We know, and you can't, you notice this is a lot bigger than this, even though it's the same number of days. It doesn't represent days. You just got to look at the actual number here, but... um, You've got these 1260 days, which is the second half. Jesus comes back at the end of that. We can predict when Jesus is coming back. But Jesus said we don't know the day or the hour. So if what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, 31 here is actually the the second coming, we would be able to predict when he's coming back. And we're told we don't know the day or the hour. It better describes the rapture. We don't know when that's going to happen. Remember, it happens somewhere in this mix. We don't know the day or the hour when it's going to happen. If you look at some of these parables, look at the parable of the uh, virgins in chapter 25. I won't go through all of this, but then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps... They had no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out of them, or come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, and our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us to go to. Go instead to the dealers and buy for yourself. What what is that describing? Notice the language there is much like a marriage. 
And so we know that the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place after the rapture. We know that that's when the marriage supper of the Lamb happens. That's when the marriage of the church to Christ takes place. It's after the rapture. And so immediately after Jesus describes in verse 31 here in Matthew 24, this coming for the elect, he gives us a parable that describes the marriage. That better describes that than the second coming. Um, Look at the parable of the talents, 25 verse 14. You've got the parable of the talents for just as for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. For one, he gave five talents to another two and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey, and you know the rest of the story there. You know? They get rewarded for what they do with those talents. It's an idea of being ready for when the king comes back, and after that they receive their rewards. Our rewards come after the rapture, not at the second coming. And so even the parables, if you go through these parables, um, they're all sort of pointing to Jesus saying, be ready for what I just told you is going to happen. And we don't have time to go through you know, all the details of those, but even some of these um, parables here, if you look through them, um, they're all focused on telling the disciples to be ready for one thing, to be prepared for one thing. And I believe it's the rapture, not to be ready for the second coming, but to be ready for the rapture itself. And so there's a reason why Jesus follows verse 31 with parables that describe that instead of parables that might better describe the second coming. And in fact, when Jesus gets done with those parables, if you go to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, then he actually goes back to his return. And we get a second description But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. When does that happen? That's His second coming. So now He's talking about His second coming. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another. The sheep separates the sheep from the... or as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And now we have, in this passage, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, which comes after his second coming. And so when you look at Matthew 25, what you basically see is Jesus talks about all these things that are going to happen, including the abomination of desolation, the persecution by the Antichrist, then the beginning of the day of the Lord, and he describes his rapture at that point. He then takes a pause, gives us a bunch of parables to tell us, be ready for that. Then he goes back to the second half of his return and says, when he returns then, and he takes his throne then there's the separation of the sheep and the goats, which is the judgment that happens right before the thousand-year reign. So, do we have any more evidence of where this rapture occurs? Look at Second Thessalonians chapter two. Look at what Paul says. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through four. The Thessalonians were struggling because they thought that those that had died, their fellow believers in Christ, when they, that they had died, that they would miss Jesus when he came back. They're afraid they're going to miss it. And so Paul has to comfort them. Verse 1, now we, res- now we respect you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. That's the rapture. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or by a messenger or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Notice he ties there the rapture to the day of the Lord. Brings them together. He says, in essence here, um, don't be confused. Don't think you've missed the rapture yet because the day of the Lord hasn't come yet. If they had missed the rapture, they'd be facing the day of the Lord. So he says, don't worry. The day of the Lord has not come yet. You haven't missed the rapture. Verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that's probably a reference to the day of the Lord, could be a reference to the rapture, but they're, again, tied closely together, probably a reference to both. He says, For it will not come, what? Unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. The son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So when does Paul say that, our, that the coming of Christ and our gathering together with him, 
which coincides with the day of the Lord, God pouring out his wrath, Paul says, when does that happen? He says it happens after the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, has been revealed and takes his place in the temple and commits what Daniel refers to as the abomination of desolation. And so as you begin to put these pieces together, what Paul describes matches what Jesus describes, which matches what we see in the book of Revelation so far. That something significant happens between the opening of that sixth seal and the opening of that seventh seal. And what that is, is the rapture of the church and the beginning of the day of God's wrath. A couple more things we'll touch on here. Chapters 12 and 14, 12 through 14 of the book of Revelation, if you want to turn back there. As we laid this out, uh, I think two weeks ago, unless it might have, might have been last week, um, I did a high-level view of the book of Revelation. And I mentioned that what we get primarily in the first chapters of Revelation are somewhat chronological in nature. They're kind of laid out this, then this. You have the seals being opened one after another. You have the seven trumpets. Then you have the seven bowls. Um, It's very chronological. But when you get to chapter 12, 13, and 14, that's a parenthesis. It's sort of the author's way of pausing and he's now going to describe other things that take place during the events that preceded chapter 12 here. Okay? And some of those things that he describes um, are what take place right during that time. Daniel kind of hints at it. You've got Michael the archangel in verse 7 there. Um, Daniel mentions that coming down to rescue Israel. Um, you've got this description of um, Christ. If you look at verse 3 of chapter 12, then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and seven or ten horns on his head were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them on the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had been, where a place had been prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's where God has Israel run away to the wilderness. Jesus describes that to be protected during this reign of the Antichrist. Um, so these events that take place here um, describe things that happen during these first, primarily during the first six seals. The one there about Christ is something that reflects back to his ascension into heaven. But there's an interesting passage here. Um, let's see, Matt, Revelation chapter 14. Jump over to Revelation 14 with me. Remember, these 12, 13, and 14, these chapters describe things that are happening periodically throughout or at times during these first six seals. And notice what he says here in verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden uh, crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sits on the throne, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the throne swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who had the power of fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because their grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth, and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. What's described here is two reapings that happen. One reaping, you have Jesus sitting up there and he tells the angel, reap the harvest. And so they're reaped. We're not told what happens to them, but they're reaped. And then a second angel comes down, reaps what's left, and what's left is thrown into the wine press of God's wrath. 
So by comparison, those that are reaped first are saved from God's wrath. The second are tossed into God's wrath. And this is something that is described as taking place in the beginning. Meaning, somewhere in these six seals, we see it happen between the sixth and the seventh seal. Does that make sense? In other words, chapters 12, 13, and 14 are describing events that take place between these first six seals. The rapture that was just described in Revelation 14, I be- or what it's, the reapings there, I believe is describing what happens right here at the sixth seal with those saints that we see all under the altar. And do you remember what Jesus said about that? Jesus actually, you can turn here on your own, but Jesus actually describes this. I think it's Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus describes the reaping. And he describes the two groups that are reaped. And so what's being described here is what Jesus himself described. I won't go into any more passages, but there are others that we could go to that sort of lend themselves to this as we put this all together. But I don't claim to be a pro or an expert on any of this. You know, all I've got is the time that I put into trying to figure out and to understand how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And we don't always have all the pieces of the puzzle. And what you guys do know about me is that my, my goal is typically, I want to take scripture at face value. And if I've got to bend rules to make it fit into something, it makes me very, very uncomfortable. And so when I was back in seminary and we were studying this for the first time, you know, we were basically presented primarily with three views. And it was sort of, let's look at these three views. And we kind of spent a semester studying the three primary views. And we were struggling with each one. You know, we were struggling with the post-trib because the Bible really just didn't support that. And we were struggling with mid-trib because there just wasn't quite enough in the scriptures. And then all that was left was pre-trib. And we wrestled with that and we asked our professor questions and we were like, we're uncomfortable here. And he's like, yeah, because you have to bend your hermeneutics to make certain things fit. Because, for instance, why does Jesus warn his disciples, Peter and you know, John and, and the others. And why does he say, when you see the abomination of desolation, what do you do with that? Well, they're not going to really see it. He didn't really mean them. He meant those later. Well, Peter and James and John would have said, us, when we see the abomination of desolation? You know, so we're forced to, like, well, not take it at face value. And that became my, my struggle with this. And that's why you see this pre-wrath you now gaining steam because more and more pre-trib pastors and scholars are going, yeah, we're finally starting to see some, some um, expert approach to this. We're starting to see more scholarship on it. We've got some really good theologians now that are trying to avoid bending the rules and saying, is there a position that we feel more comfortable with? Certainly not because we may be here, but because we're not having to bend those rules as much. And what if we just take it at face value? And I believe one of the reasons why it took this viewpoint longer to hold on to is partly because of what I said earlier. None of us want to be here for it. But that's a huge driver. Even in um, good scholarly circles. Um, I've seen some really good Godly men who were partly responsible for teaching me the Hebrew that I learned in seminary who have abandoned a literal interpretation of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. Because they just don't see how that fits with science now. Good, godly men who just 30 years ago said, no, at face value, this is what it means, that are now saying, well, no, we're right. it doesn't really mean that. Because it doesn't fit with science. And now, they bend the rules. A day doesn't really mean a day. Well, yes, it does. And you, know, you can get into the arguments. And so, again, I don't propose to be an expert on this. But this is where I've arrived. Because I think that it does the best job of letting us just take the scripture as is at face value. Now, that doesn't mean there's not challenges to it. There always will be until we get all the pieces of the puzzle. But I think we need to be prepared. And this is what I'm going to close with. Why is all this important to us? Well, it's important to us because whether you're pre-trib or pre-wrath, 
The reality of it is Jesus warned us so that we would be ready. That's, that's the reason. We simply need to be ready. He warned us so that we would be ready. Turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Starting in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun and moons and star or moon and the stars and on the earth dismay among the nations and perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fainting from fear and expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I believe what he's saying there is the rapture is near. Be ready when you see these things. But then he told him a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth their leaves, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. He's probably, these things there is probably a reference back to what he began with, which is the destruction of the temple. Because the disciples asked him, when are we going to see these things? Primarily the destruction of the temple. And Jesus says, it's coming. And in some respects that was fulfilled in A.D. 70. So he says that these things will happen um, within this generation. There's another reason... um, to understand that then is kind of a broad reference to these things but we'll get that some other time in other words not everything Jesus described there including his coming his rapture would happen in that generation um, there's another way to understand that that verse there but um, heavens and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away be on your guard so that your heads, or I'm sorry, your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and worries of life and that they will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape these things and that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus himself, as he's talking to his disciples about this, but not just the events that would happen during their day, which I believe, again, he was probably referencing the destruction of Israel or the destruction of the temple there in AD 70. But he told them, as he describes these things and as he describes the things that will come at the end of time, he basically says, be ready. Be prepared. Your redemption is at hand. You know what it's like. If you don't know something's coming, you're not always prepared for it. And so that's ultimately the goal. So do we have to figure out all the nuances and understand every little piece or have every little part answered for us? No. We love to spend time on this because we want to know all the details. But if we miss the one thing, which is be prepared. Whether you're pre-trib, whether you're pre-wrath, you're called to the same thing. Be prepared. Be ready Jesus says, so that you might be able to stand. Amen?